Let us therefore go forth unto him without the camp, bearing his report. We have paid um, considerable attention in detail to the beginning of what's called chapter 13 on the question of love and hospitality. Remember, you should be hospitable even to strangers, you might say about anything or an angel from God, a stranger, a teacher, a messenger from God. Uh, we've looked at the need for Christian purity in sexual relations and in financial relations. We emphasized last time the Christian virtue of being content with what we have. Something which I think everyone in the room was tenderly invited. We are content. We're uh, people who want more and more. And we need to remember God never fails us, He never forsake us, and therefore we can be satisfied with what we have. And and not have the love of money get in the way of following him in his kingdom. Then we pick up at verse 7, which I said just a little bit about in our last study, and I want to pay more attention to tonight. Remember them that had the rule over you, and that gave them to you the will of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. The author says, imitate the faithfulness of those who led you to the gospel. The leaders that are being referred to in this verse them that have the rule over you. Uh, the leaders here are not the current leaders of the Christian congregation to which this author is writing. Now he does refer to the current leaders of the congregation in verses 17 and 24, you'll notice. Verse 17 it says, Obey them that have, when it's supposed to have the rule over you. In verse 24 he says, Salute all them that have the rule over you. But back here in our verse, verse 7, he says, remember them that had the rule over you. Remember them that were your leaders, if you will. You wouldn't need to ask them to remember their current leaders. But bear in mind, remember those who at one time led you. And in verse 9, he's going to exhort that we uh, pay attention to their doctrine rather than being carried away by diverse and strange teachings. Give heed to their doctrine. And not just to their doctrine, but give heed to their lifestyle as well. He points us to the outcome of their conduct or the sum total of their life effort, translated in my Bible as um, the issue of their life, to be translated the manner of their life, or in the terms of the determinant of their life. Consider what they accomplished in their life, that whole course leading up to their entering into glory with Christ and imitate that faith. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate because ends there in the English language um, would give the idea, and it's impossible, especially in medieval commentators, to say, imitate the martyrs. The end, the way they ended their lives, gave their lives for Jesus. Well, of course, many of these leaders probably did give their lives for Jesus, and that is part and parcel of imitating their faithfulness. But it is not a specific focus on the death of the leaders that this verse speaks of. But it really talks about the climax, the culmination of their lives that takes into one sweep all that their lives represented. Uh, 
But it's a covenantal institution too. Not only was Jesus the church itself to your leaders, not only is he accessible to you today as the church itself, but he shall always be to your children as well. And so the previous generations and the generations to come will have the same Savior and the same strength that they're disposing. I want to suggest that those of us who believe that um, the apostolic age of miracles and charismatic gifts is over have lost sight of this. We tend to think there's something of a dispensational break between the New Testament and ourselves, don't we? And back then, all these fantastic, glorious things were sort of the New Testament happened. Well, Jesus is really manifested as well, not only on earth, but even through the apostles, through the miracles they did for them. And now we live in kind of a parenthesis. We're waiting for things to kind of heat up again, to kind of catch on again. And Jesus comes back, finally. God is not acting in the world again, right? Proto dispensationalism. We live in a parenthesis age where the, the power of the kingdom is really not available. No. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throughout the New Testament dispensation, it's the same Christ who is the Savior and Lord uh, for all of his people. And so if you're leaders, so it's not just the nations of this world or the John Calvin's and Martin Luther's, if you're leaders for two times, you have to go all over the back of the New Testament. Remember that the same power they had at their disposal is the power that is there in this world. Yeah, I think it's saying you both 
They didn't deviate from that stuff. They wouldn't be a special group, would they? They'd just be plain garden variety Christians. Like us. They offered them to say, Don't be carried away by these people. And then he adds, For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by me, wherein they that occupy themselves were not profitable. He's giving a general moral point about avoiding heretical teaching. And then he drops, you know, specifically into that historical particular that's troubling people. But he doesn't give us any introduction to it. So we're going to have to do some detective work to figure out what he's talking about. Obviously, the heresy that is troubling the congregation here is one connected with what? What is the theme, right? Who of some sort that's right in need? Because he corrects his heresy. Because if you look at the heart of by grace and not by need, particularly need that they that were occupied um, with the uh, uh, they were prophets by being occupied with need. So it's an unedifying doctrine dealing with food that the author is talking about. The quotation has been in some uh, commentators who think that. This is probably a doctrine pertaining to abstinence for eating certain kinds of meat. We see that in the New Testament. We know the Philip, for instance, in Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of feast day or new moon or Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come with the body of Christ. Let no man rob you of your pride by voluntary humility and worshiping of angels dwelling in the things that you have seen, vainly puffed up by fleshly mind and not holding fast to him, to whom all the body is sliding it together through the joints and bands and creatures of the earth of God. If you died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, if you're living in the world, you subject yourselves to everything? All these things are the parents of the evil after the precepts and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in your worship, and humility and severity to the body, but are not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. So clearly there was a lot of teaching in the New Testament church that said, Stay, 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 or be holy if you stay away from certain things. Paul has no sympathy for such teaching at all. You've heard me this recently talk about the doctrine we should abstain from alcoholic beverage in the same line of thought. You'll be a holy person if you don't touch that hate. That is of no value in this fleshly indulgence at all. Absolutely worthless when it comes to transportation. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit says expressly that in later times some shall fall away from the place where they do the seducing spirit and doctrines of demons through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies, branding in their own conscience into the hot iron, forbidding to know, commanding to abstain from meat which God created you through the thanksgiving by those who believe in the truth. For every creature of God is more than nothing is to be rejected if it continues with thanksgiving for the sacrifice of the word of God is there. Another indication that there is this absolute heresy in this New Testament church. Don't eat certain meat. Uh, that's a demon. That is a demon. 
Uh, but what we do is talk about a parent who's been running from years to school. And so the national students say, well, this is an abstinent parent. I would suggest that it's not that at all. If you look at the way the author expresses himself in verse 9, you can probably see why that is. He says, uh, It is good that the heart be established by grace, not by loose, wherein they would occupy themselves in that confidence. They would occupy themselves in the loose, they would occupy themselves in the loose. So this is not coming from his own existence. Because if the author says it's grace, not loose, that builds you up in the first of faith, those who teach that you should be certain kinds of loose could agree and say that's right. So there is those kinds of loose, emphasize the grace of God. You see what I'm getting at? The very fact that he says, look, focus on grace, not the eating of loose, shows that he's not saying, look for the grace of God rather than not eating the loose. Therefore, we have a different kind of parallel. The heresy where when people eat the meat that's being referred to, they are not profiting. This pen puts us off to what kind of eating we do. We have an altar where they have no right to eat the food that's having. The kind of um, meat that we're eating, apparently, are meats connected with the sacrificial ritual of the Old Covenant. It's a tabernacle in temple ritual, typified. It's a food um, that the Levitical priest had a right to eat. The meat that were connected with the sacrificial ceremonies of the old covenant. These are not meats of the pagan altar, apparently. These are meats of the Jewish altar and the Levites. And so the author, I think, is pointing to the obsolete eating of sacrificial meals within the setting of Judaism, such as the Passover and other um, offerings. I'll just give you the passages to look at the world study. In Exodus 12, verse 9, we see that um, the Old Testament Jews ate the Passover sacrifice. Leviticus 19, verses 5 and 6, and Leviticus 22, verses 29 and 30, refers to the fact that in many of the offerings of the Old Covenant, the meat that was sacrificed was shared between the priest and the offerers. Remember last week on Christmas, it says that the peace and fellowship is accomplished the peace offering. And that's when you sit down at the table and eat with the priest. Well, the author says that we have an altar where they have no right to use the church covenant. Because we have a different kind of altar for which we can. And the sacrifices of the old covenant are of no real spiritual benefit. Turn back to chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. He's already shown that the sacrifices do not accomplish salvation. This is the figure for the time token according to which are offered that gifts and sacrifices that cannot accept in the context of the worship is perfect, being only with meats and drinks and diverse wrestlers, carnal ordinances and those that are upon the Reformation. 
the Lord's sacrifices and offerings did not make the offering with purpose. It says here that um, those who use these means are not established by them. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by means wherein they that are occupied, they that occupy themselves were not possible. There is no profit in their sacrifices anymore. The object of food goes into the stomach and strengthens the body, as it were, but only the grace of God touches the heart. This is the Bible center of our lives and our families. So, this congregation has been afflicted with ratification. The ratification of the Old Testament Jews. How do that? Indication that what? Many years ago, may have been orthodoxy, which after the coming of Christ, perished. And they encouraged you not to go free in the temple, in the tabernacle culture, and the sacrificial meals of which you can eat. He says, that's not going to stop you anything. Only the grace of God touching your heart will establish you. It's 10 and 11 points of the uniqueness of the Christian altar. We have an altar where they that have no, they have no right to use to serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priests and offers of sin are burned outside the camp. Remember back our lessons to Christianity and the Jewish sacrifices? On the annual day of atonement, what happened to the sin offering? And one of the altars, sin offerings were sacrificed his name. The blood of which is then carried into not just the holy place, but the holy of holies. And the body of the animal then is burned completely, right? Burned where that? Not on the altar, but must be carried outside the camp and totally consumed out there. And so the author is referring to that when he speaks that we have an altar where they have no right to be prepared to have an because the bodies of those priests who was brought into the holy place of the high priest are burned outside the camp. There's a little further, there's a real difference between the Christian altar and the Jewish altar. In the case of the Jewish altar, those priests did not eat the same offering. Believe it. We have an altar. But if you were in the old covenant, you couldn't eat from. After all, the body of such sacrificial animals had to be totally consumed from the place of the fire outside the camp. By the way, interestingly, in the Greek, present tense, words are used for the bodies of those. I think it's called in the present tense. They are going outside the camp. Why is that significant that he uses the present tense over in the past? Right. An indication that this was written while that crisis was still in operation, and therefore it was before the fall of Jerusalem in the present. Okay. Now, the typology of the sin atonement is fulfilled, of course. As you know, if you've read the book of Hebrews at all, in the redemptive work of Christ. And so everything that took place in the sin atonement on the day of atonement in the old covenant pointed to the Christian altar. And there's 
afforded this continuity somewhere, right? Very The sin atoning offering was made on the altar at the temple. And then the blood carried into the Holy of Holies. Jesus, the high priest, has carried his own blood before God into the Holy of Holies of Heaven. We've read about that previously. However, historically, Jesus was not crucified at the tabernacle, was he? He was not crucified at the temple. He was crucified there. Outside the city gate. And so the author realized that he's listening to um, and Congress, who is reading, is going to make use of that, this continuity, to point out something very important about the Christian faith. Partaking of um, the sacrifice of Christ has nothing to do with being a Levitical priest. There's things that we have an altar that those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Just being a Levitical priest doesn't allow you to eat this altar. And that's all you are to the bit of the priest you may have to be in this house. Yeah. Yeah. that verse doesn't make much sense because this is all past tense because they're also dead. It's all past tense. Obviously, the eating of Christ's altar is not physical. It's spiritual. The only bit of the priest could not eat the sin offering at all, even in the physical sense. But they can't eat of the spiritual sin offering whatsoever. In John 6, verses 52 to 55, remember how Jesus says, If you do not eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. So we do feed upon him. But how do we feed upon Christ? How do we feed upon Christ? In verse 35 in John, the fifth chapter, Jesus explains, that those who come to him in faith feed upon him and will never hunger and will never thirst. And so when we come to Christ in faith, Christ in his sin atonement, then it's as though we were eating from the altar, the Christian altar, as we were going to face the virgin. It probably will not surprise you that many people have tried to make this a reference to the Lord's Supper. We have an altar okay, that we descend upon the offering from. And therefore, we have the Lord's Supper being called an altar, which justifies what? The re-sacrifice of Christ and the transubstantiation. And this is one of the key doctrines used by the Roman Catholics against the Confirmers to defend themselves uh, against the accusations brought uh, to the mass. Well, in the New Testament, the word altar is never used for the Lord's Supper. In fact, we don't find the word altar being used at the Lord's Supper until late until the third century after Christ. And it would appear from the context when one of the leading Roman Catholic scholars on this passage admits this, from the context it would appear that the altar is a reference to the redemptive work of Christ as a whole and not to the sacramental remembrance of the work of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So don't be misled if you hear people refer to that verse uh, in that way. Well, we've got a problem here before we end tonight. We've got to solve this. What do we do with the fact that the sin atonement, the altar 
of Christ is outside the camp. Well, really, grasp an amazing concept that is going to come in. It will be important even though we're running away. Turn to Leviticus 16, verses 26 and 28. Leviticus 16, verses 26 and 28. that from let it go, the goat for Abigail shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh and water and afterward he shall come into the camp. Verse 28. And he that burneth him shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh and water and afterward he shall come into the camp. And the high priest went out before this ritual of Azazel and the burning of the he was defiled outside the camp because the camp of Israel was full of ground because God was in the midst of the camp of Israel. And so when the priest went outside the camp, he could not come back until he did what? Until he washed his clothes and bathed his flesh. Not because he got dusty and dirty out there, but because in a ceremonial way, he was now defiled. He was part of the world. He was not part of the holy people of God when he took the sin offering out there. And so outside the camp is the place of defilement. Sanctification requires purification entering into the camp again. Now remembering that, that's crucial background to read the Hebrews talking, remembering that, listen to this. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And the old covenant going outside the camp was to be defiled. In the new covenant, Jesus went outside the sanctuary. The Christian altar outside the camp. And the Christian altar sanctifies the world, both the whole option. It's amazing reversal, you see. Now unholy ground is Jerusalem. And what will happen in AD 70? God will show how unholy that ground is to vindicate the good name of his son by destroying those who crucified. Jerusalem is no longer the holy city. Jesus took the altar outside the gate, what should have been unholy, unsanctifying ground, and made it the place of sanctification, the place that makes us holy, the cross of Christ, something outside the gate. When the author calls on us as Christians to follow Christ. Do you remember how Jesus says in Matthew the 10th chapter that uh, the servant is not above his master? We must go with Jesus Christ. We must follow him. And he says, even to the point of what? Taking up our cross and following The author of Hebrews similarly says, Let us therefore go forth unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. We must. As Jesus was separated, we must be separated as well. We must be willing to go outside the camp. The separation in the Bible is never separation from. It's always merely separation from. It's always separation to. We separate ourselves from the unbelieving world by what? Being separated unto. Going unto him outside the camp. So doing, we learn what it means to bear his reproach. Why do you think 
the Jews did not allow Romans to crucify because within the city gates of Jerusalem. Because of the reproach and shame that was on their cross, they had to be outside the Holy City. And now God says, if Jesus was crucified, you better know that that shame and reproach. He suffered outside the city. That's what we do. Do you call the fireman? We call sanctification. But they call sin. We call it what? What are consequences? Hebrews 11 26. This is a good point to end on. We read there how Moses counted the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. We go outside the gate, we separate ourselves from the world, but we're dedicated to Christ, and we bear his reproach in that. We will be given to him and not to die for our faith. But like Moses, we should consider the reproach of Christ a great wish, which is much more than even the whole land of Egypt. Yeah. Do you have any questions on Christ? Do you think that in verse 8 the author of Hebrews is attempting to set up the, the stage here a little bit? Comparing uh, verse 8 with verse 10, so in verse 10, the old ways of doing things have fallen away, but yet in the providence and the plan of God for the redemption of his people, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, um, as you mentioned, it was at one time it was orthodoxy to do all of these ritualistic sorts of things, but now it's no longer orthodoxy. But yet Christ was evident even in that, even in the old time, and he's still evident <coughs> at this time. Hey, this is an observation. Uh, he's closing one door of objection. People might say, well, look at these differences, places of defilement, places of sanctification, so forth and so on. But the author has already told us that the Christ that saved people back then took the life of the same kind of place as today and the fulfillment of all those types is the same Christ. So it, it's the same covenant, it's the same Savior, and the only difference is the outward historical uh, working out of it.
Thank you.